Interact helps Canadians access their funds their way. Products like Interact Debit and Interact e-Transfer have made money mobile, taking it from the confines of traditional banking and ushering it into the digital age. As consumers adapt to new technology, so does Interact. Learn more at newsroom.interact.ca. Hey everyone, it's uh, Friday, June 14th. We are back in action. I've got Shannon Proudfoot of McLean's and David Reevely of the Canadian Press here with me in our Ottawa studio. Hi to you both. Hello. How are you doing? How was your week? Pretty good. It's uh, t- hectic up on the hill. The yeah. session's ending and they're legislating up a storm. That's right. Bills are ping-ponging back and forth between the House and the Senate and there's just and things are getting amended. There's a, uh, It's a pretty frantic pace. It's final to, what, less than two weeks? Nine mm-hmm. days? Ten days? Yeah, I, w- they, can, they could sit longer if they wanted, but one, right. one week is really what's left after right. today. Okay, well, we'll hop right into it. On Monday, the federal government announced it would pave the way for a ban on single-use plastics by 2021. According to the statement released, Canadians will throw away around $11 billion worth of plastic materials each year by 2030. Some of the examples of the plastics they're planning to ban are like plastic cutlery, um, bags, straws, plates, and stir sticks. However, though, in the announcement, there wasn't a clear definition of the term or or an indication of how how they'll define it. Uh, but just that it will comply with uh, scientific research. Additionally, uh, as a part of the plan, um, they uh, the Fed said they'll work with provinces and territories to monitor companies' production of plastics, and they'll um, make sure that they 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 they're kept accountable for for that which they sell. Um, so I think while this is like a relatively positive announcement, I do feel it's lacking a bit of detail, probably. Uh, really what they announced, despite kind of all the fuss around it, is the beginning of a process to decide mm-hmm. what might be banned or restricted. And what's likely to come out of it is things like a ban on single-use plastic bags, a ban on plastic plates and cutlery and that sort of thing, or, or at least drastic restrictions on their sale and use. Um, Other stuff, they might change what you're allowed to make things out of so that they're easier to recycle or um, less harmful if they end up in landfills or rivers or streams. But they're kind of going to go product by product and substance by substance. Um, So this is, this is, they made a big fuss about it. And I do think they're, they're generally serious, but they are not, announcing bans. They're announcing the beginning of a process that could end up with bans. Intention. Yes. An invitation to intention. And although they have said the only sort of specific thing that came out of it is they said they are likely to model this on a similar EU ban that came into effect in March. And that's where we get sort of the itemized list of things. Mm -hmm. I can't remember if it was a named source or just sort of a government source said that they would probably look at doing something similar. Mm -hmm. And that's where we get that list of like plastic stir sticks and those kinds of things. And I think it was was the UK, right, that also... um, so the EU did that, it implemented something in, in, in something similar in, in March, and then I think it was the UK that implemented something maybe April of last year. So I wonder if, it's probably too early to tell if there's been... Um, yeah, like the EU's ban I don't even think has come into effect. Right. It's no, just it, taking shape. So there's not... 2021. There's, there's sort of more isolated, discrete examples. Like I know the city of, I believe it's San Jose, California, banned 
plastic bags and actually there saw an enormous decline, 89% decline in the number of them, I think, caught in like sort of ditches and drainage Mm -hmm. um, pipes and things like that. So there's sort of only only more narrow kind of case studies, but they do show some promise in the efficacy of this. Like they're basically, they talked about the circular economy and they're trying to get rid of this idea that you as a producer make a bunch of plastic forks, somebody sells them at the dollar store, you buy them for your kid's birthday, you chuck them all out and then that's it. Like they're trying to disrupt that pattern in what I would argue is a we need to do that. Like something's yeah, got to give here. We got to stop just sh- jamming this stuff in the ocean. But th- like David said, there's not a lot of meat on the bones yet as right. far as how this is actually going to work or even the timeline and with an election coming and yeah. the landscape being what well, it yeah. is, like who knows. This is on the on the long list of reelect us and yes. promises from yeah. this. I, I would really like some politicians to wear buttons that say reelect <laughs> us and, and dot, dot, dot. That would be good, actually. I think good, that would be really, really good strategy. Cut to the chasey. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I do feel like we've been saying a lot lately, you know, not a lot of meat in the bones. Maybe that's the pharmacare thing we'll get to yeah. as well. And there is, to a second part of what they're proposing, again, very vague, that also seems important, which is making companies responsible for recycling right. the stuff they produce. That seems really, because it, it's, it's when you start looking at the numbers, this made me not feel good about dutifully putting things in my blue box and black box. 11% of what we send out in our blue boxes, thinking we're being good, is actually recycled. The rest of it is just chucked or burned or shipped to a developing country. So like no it's point. not, we're just not doing it. There's a variety of very complex technical and geopolitical right, reasons for that. not good. So... The other component of what they announced, which had even less specificity attached to it, is some vague notion of saying to companies that produce plastic forks or whatever, okay, you're on the hook for figuring out how these get out of the waste cycle and, and yeah. how we make them into something. And could they put a price on on doing if you if you were gonna produce that or, or, or sell plastics or whatever, you could put a price on that? There yeah, there's there are a lot of tools you yeah. could use. Um, I think the the thing that Shannon's touching on there is is the key to it, it is making stuff that is designed to be recycled at the other end, mm-hmm. and that is one of the like the central challenges in mm-hmm. waste management. Is like you can have um, stuff where all the components in it are recyclable or compostable or reusable, but they get combined in such a way that you end mm-hmm. up with a product that you can't right. take apart. Like an example I remember reading about a while ago is um, carpeting. You know, you've, you'll have um, natural kind of backings made of jute or whatever, and uh, basically plastic in the fibers. Yeah. And each of those things taken apart can be recycled, but they're glued together. The glue is a problem. Combining them in such a, and then then they're all in one piece, and the expense associated with taking them apart and getting rid of the glue means the stuff ends up in the garbage. And this is true of furniture. This is true in some places with drinking boxes. This is true <laughs> of like boxes. stereos. You know, you might yeah. be able but to recycle s- all the bits. Even simpler not components. Together. Like I read those plastic clamshells that you get berries in, and we both yes. have small kids. I buy them by mm-hmm. the truckload. Yeah. The adhesive that sticks the label to them either cannot be pulled away and so they they can't be recycled. That seems like an eminently easy problem to fix. If you just said to the companies that make these, look, like put a piece of cardboard on them or whatever, something that can be taken off. Like that's where you can see an obvious place where there there needs to be something that kicks in in the system and just forces them to make these things more easily recyclable. And I guess that's the other component of this proposal is like there's an innovation component too, right? It will encourage companies to be more innovative. Well, it'll create jobs that way. Sure. Yeah, I mean, the job argument always strikes me as a 
you're kind of adding inefficiency into the system if you're saying, oh, we're, we're, we're going to create a whole bunch of jobs that people are going to be paid to do to manage this stuff. <laughs> yeah. But, do, I mean, waste ultimately is expensive. Yeah. And yeah, if it goes into landfills, somebody is paying to operate those landfills. Often it's municipalities, there are private landfills, but they, they cost a ton of money to site, to yeah. open, to operate, ultimately to seal up again. Yeah. The more we can do to keep stuff out of them, the cheaper it'll be for everyone in the long run. Are there some industries, like I'm trying to think of some of the pockets of our society that will be like greatly hit by this in a bad way. Like who uses, well, I guess hospitals. Yeah, so that's one of the spinoff stories that came out of this week is hospitals are rife with single-use plastics that have to be thrown out for reasons of medical safety. But this is not, they're not, I mean, first of all, they're not talking about any details in the ban, but even this theoretical ban is not across the board. We're not going to start forcing hospitals to reuse like IV tubing and and syringes. So there are certainly exceptions. I think one of the first kind of critical responses you heard very predictably was small businesses will be hit by this. They can't afford blah, blah, blah. And that's where I think the innovation argument could come in if you, and maybe a little bit of job creation or something, Mm -hmm. you know, if I've seen some places have the, like the, the, disposable utensils made out of cornstarch or something. I'm sure some of them are not all they're cracked up to be or they are more expensive. They're talking about banning what they call, I guess, it's. I think it's expanded expanded plastics, which is basically the, the white pla- styrofoam, styrofoam take-out oh, containers. Yeah, yeah. It seems fairly doable to just say we're not going to do that anymore. McDonald's we're going to go back to like to cardboard boxes or something, yeah. right? Um, like yeah, the kind of right. iconic New York takeout. Yeah. So yeah. have we heard from Sheer on this? What has been the opposition saying? Is um, it a little bit like it's uh, very it's well so far? Aloof. I think from the conservatives has been a very like everything is very oriented toward guess what's happening in October. So so yeah. Shear's response to this was in the dying days of a scandal plagued government, which has now become a refrain mm-hmm. for them. That that's a yep. thing they keep going back to. This is what they've trotted out. Like how can we expect them to manage this? It's not going to make a difference. Um, the and then the other component of that for the conservatives is I think they said June nineteenth is when they're coming out with their climate change mm-hmm. plan. So yes, then presumably we'll have an alternative or some other plan to present yeah um broader environmental policy of which yeah. you know climate change is the big item but exactly we can expect more from the tories this by this time next week uh-huh. and and relatedly the parliamentary budget officer came in on thursday yesterday um with a report stating that the, the feds would need to bump up uh the carbon tax as much as um i think 50 dollars a ton on greenhouse gas emissions to meet the paris climate agreement so again that's fodder for the opposition do you think that the conservatives can find like a good middle ground on this just in ter- like they played defense for a long time now obviously on, on carbon tax and the climate policy at large like is there a way for them to i guess we'll find out and see but come out well the know. rubber sort of hits the road for them next week right because until now their position has been very much a classical opposition position which has been picking apart the government's position which is their role but without having an alternative to present so so mm-hmm. that kind of shifts next week because then they start to be able to say we think that what they're doing is a bad idea because here's what we have on offer but but that kind of cuts both ways that offers them a chance to tell voters what they offer but mm-hmm. it also Open. is kind of put up or shut up right. sort of thing and then once you put it up everyone else gets to discuss Just whether it's what, effective it's and what exactly. you're doing one of the loopy things about this whole discussion is that a carbon tax or a price on carbon 
historically is the conservative solution to well, climate change. Well, that's the thing right. that's always it, so yeah. interesting. It's it's price incentives that nudge people it's a market to make thing. their own decisions. It's market-based. If, it's so funny, if emitting right? is worth the money to you, then you do it. Yeah. If it's not, then, then I mean, and, and different sort of strains of conservatives can argue about cap and trade versus carbon taxes, and which is slightly more efficient than the other. But like the old leftist approach is command and control. The government says, you stop polluting or we're going to fine you. The right-wing position is, we'll give you on the one hand incentives and on the other hand a punishment and you figure out what to do. And now apparently for the big C conservatives, that's the worst thing they've ever yeah. heard. So where what they have left, I'm not sure where? what they've got that is consistent with their stated philosophy. And it's fascinating, too, how quickly and almost arbitrarily that shifted to some degree, right? Because you think 18 months ago, if what happened to Patrick Brown hadn't happened Mm. to Patrick Mm -hmm. Brown and Doug Ford hadn't become leader, that was the Ontario Conservative plan. And now instead you have open warfare over this very issue, like where this very issue is the nexus of it. And that would have been a fundamentally different thing had Ontario politics played out differently. That's And a carbon tax pioneered in Canada by right-leaning governments in Alberta and British Columbia, you know, so the, the BC Liberals who are kind of the, on the conservative side there, and by the progressive conservatives back in the day in, in Alberta. Like it, it, And now, apparently, it's a permanent tax on everything that yeah. conservatives have to fight. Mm-hmm. So they're going to be in favor of more yeah. government regulation? I'm I think there's looking been, forward to seeing yeah, what the I am, I federal am conservatives have to say. I think there's been some chatter, and I don't know how well-sourced this is, that their approach will be that Canada should be like the helper monkey to the rest of the world, and our role that's, should be oh, to encourage right. yes. innovation and changes for other countries, which is all well and good. I just think we're reaching a point where we got to do a little of everything. Like, there is no... Mm-hmm. Right. It doesn't look anymore like any one thing is going to be enough. Yeah. So, I mean... This will happen on the 10th of never, but if everyone chipped That's in their true. ideas and we just started working on them all, yeah. but that may be one of the one of the that directions is, they go in that will help so them yeah. sort of square the circle between yeah. their, their rhetoric on attacks and what their voter base wants and the imperative to offer a plan to do something. Maybe that's, that's the way they'll he did go. Men- that was mentioned a few weeks ago, right? Yeah. In the preliminary. Helping to fund projects yeah. abroad. Abroad. And, and, right. Okay. Well, we'll find out next Wednesday. On Thursday, the Advisory Council on the Implementation of National Pharmacare, led by Dr. Eric Hoskins, released its long-awaited report detailing the need for a universal single-payer public drug plan. The former Ontario Health Minister made it known in the press conference that the pharmacare would be a key election issue, as is climate change, um, which makes the timing of this report fairly uh, interesting and yet not totally surprising. The Liberals appointed Hoskins last year to head up the Advisory Council following the release of the 2018 federal budget. In the past 12 months, the group has traveled, you know, across the country to hear from stakeholders, patients, docs, all that. What's clear is we remain, I think, the only universal healthcare system with uh, within an overarching prescription drug coverage platform. What, what that means is we have sort of a patchwork of private and public plans and policies in place that leave a good chunk of Canadians having to pay out of pocket, um, huge costs for drugs, and in some cases just going without. But it's not going to be cheap to establish a a more comprehensive coverage plan. The report estimates this costing around $15 billion per year, which could be implemented, but a plan could be implemented by um, 2027. So one of the key pillars of the plan, which we've talked about on the pod before, which is is this sort of, um, and we've heard snippets over the recent months, is this central drug agency, which would list the available drugs covered by taxpayers, 
questions there around, you know, how compre- comprehensive would this list be? And, and also, you know, if you, if you list the drugs up front, can you um, sort of that lessens your bargaining, um, the bargaining room for, to get lower prices with drug companies. I've sort of equated this um, announcement as like a liberal, like this is their liberal vision, but I guess that's not totally accurate, right? I think they've sent up some signals that they're not necessarily on board with exactly what the advisory council recommended. Like, um, so the advisory council, particularly Hoskins, was very vocal about there were sort of a couple of like obvious options on the table, which was like a plug the gaps kind of thing, like find a way to cover the people that don't have good coverage or a universal single payer. And that is strongly what the advisory council recommended and and what Hoskins has talked about. But then you have like Bill Morneau, who just a few months ago, very explicitly talked about a plug the gaps kind of system. And you had Jeanette Petipa-Taylor, the health minister this week, who kept it's always very telling, right, when a politician repeats the same mm. phrasing verbatim in response to a variety of different questions. And what she kept saying is, we are committed to all Canadians having universal coverage. Now, who knows where they're going to land on this, but that certainly sounds like right. right now, to me, they are a little bit more interested in, or at least not committing to the idea of an overhaul. And yes. so Hoskins' big arguments about the benefits of the universal coverage plan, first of all, is the universality of it. He said, if we had done what me- right. Medicare, what, what the plug the gaps thing, yeah. we would have ended up with a US style healthcare system by now, patchwork. So it's the universality, the fairness of it, but also the cost savings. It's like buying your toilet paper at Costco instead of at the corner store. He's saying, I think mm. they say the $15 billion cost is in 2027 once they would scale up to uh, a very detailed f- formula, what they call a formula, yeah, the menu formula. of drugs they yeah. would cover. Yeah. But they also cite a $5 billion savings because we would be negotiating in bulk for the drugs we buy. And so they're Over, essentially... Overall, Canada overall. Canada and Canadians and insurance plans and everything would spend $5 billion less on pharmaceuticals is the is their projection. And they're, they're basically talking about uploading those costs, right? They're talking about saving, I think that the figure they threw out was about $350 for the average Canadian family um, and $750 for for employers, and so who would be paying that instead would be the federal yeah. and provincial governments in some way. The, the real test, I guess, will be if some of those um, key findings in the report are in the Liberals' campaign platform. Yeah, I think probably what they're headed for, and I don't like to make predictions, but I'll do it here, is promising universal access to necessary drugs without a lot of specifics on exactly what that means yeah. or how they're going to get there. Yeah. And, you know, thanks very much to the advisory council. This is very helpful. We'll, we will take it under advisement. We will talk to the provinces and territories, and we're all going to have to work together. Yeah. And that's that's an element of, uh, it, in the, the council's report, is the feds and the provinces and territories have to work combine together. forces here. And so it's not entirely up to the federal government what happens. Right. There's got to be like a great big, either a health minister's summit or a first minister's conference or something to yes. take this up. Um, because too, I mean, I think it was uh, Jagmeet Singh, the NDP leader came up this week saying, actually, there's more of us in this report than there is the Liberals. And yeah. It is most closely aligned so far with the NDP platform, although they're also the only ones that have come out with an explicit right. pharmacare yeah. plan. which they've been right? promising for, yeah. I mean, it's something they've been calling for for a long for time. For a very long And this time. has been around and around and around yeah. for decades, right? There have been repeated attempts to do this. Well, yeah, actually, um, I mean, someone, let's, let's someone, talk about the problem a little bit. It's, it's that when they created Medicare... You took drugs like while you were sick, and then you got better, and then you stopped taking drugs. But we're now we have miracle drugs that can keep people alive for a long, long yeah. time with chronic conditions. People with you know diabetes, 
it's controlled for years and years and years. Certain kinds of cancer you can live with for years and years and years, heart conditions, all sorts of things, but the drugs are not cheap. And so this is, in many cases, what we have instead of hospital stays. Right. People are living longer, they're living healthier, they're living happier, but they're living with pharmaceutical help. Yeah. And, and, and the acute care illnesses are, are, are managed not by surgery, but by, yeah. by you know, medication. And, and that, that was really sort of expensive. Yeah. And that was sort of in a way Hoskins answer when someone asked him, like, we've tried this for 40 years. Like, why is it going to succeed now? That was basically his answer is that drugs are more expensive than they've ever been. Like there is there is an impetus to do something about yes. this now to, yeah. to break have a better negotiating power. And kind of. But it was it was interesting, like, when I was listening to Shear's response to it, he painted a clear line between that, that Hoskins was the Ontario health minister when um, Kathleen Wynne was premier, and that was a sort of failed pharmacare plan, and... Um, Sort of the just just making it clear that there is that tie, right? That that didn't work making out. Making so a partisan is, point. <laughs> what a refreshing surprise <laughs> right. for everyone. And I, that liberals are big spenders. And right, you I know. think that was the general nature yeah. of it. I mean, they, yes. the, the Ontario Liberals came out with a partial pharmacare plan that was partly then dismantled by the Ontario Progressive Conservatives. I mean, I, I do think Hoskins was widely seen as one of Kathleen Wynne's most capable ministers, and yes. it was a real blow when he quit yeah. to do this instead. That was a bit of a shock. Uh, and so, I, you by all means tar him with the the Ontario Liberal brush. The yeah. party got <laughs> thrown right out by the voters of Ontario. But I, I do think the idea and proposals and and the math and whatnot should be judged on their own merits, yes. not by who mm-hmm. this guy used to work Who's with. Who, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Could this be impl- this is out of curiosity? Could this be implemented kind of like a carbon tax, in that if some provinces didn't want to do it, they would? Yep. You, I mean, we we somewhat do this with uh, with healthcare, I, and this is this is the the idea is that the provinces would be the administrators of this thing, yeah. but the ad- incremental cost, the, the sort of extra cost beyond what government spent now, would be funded by the federal government. If you're a provincial government and you want to opt out, I mean, there's no reason why yeah. it couldn't be set yeah. up like that. Presumably, yeah. your citizens would want to know why, you know, the people the next province over get there home cancer yeah. drugs and diabetes drugs yeah. and antidepressants and whatnot funded when uh, when they don't, but yeah. you could. They sort of explicitly allow for that in the the report, mm-hmm. the advisory council report, where they say we could model this on, on how we put Medicare together in the first place, which is as provinces join, like we don't have to wait until all 10 plus 2 are on board. Just as people sign on, hmm. then you start, like they, they ad- advocated for dedicated financial transfers from the federal government and as you strike agreements with each province you start mm-hmm. you know start up the money pipeline and they just sign on one by one mm. which as david points out kind of would have a presumably a fairly elegant kind of political angle to it in that people mm-hmm. would start going hey what's with like manitoba getting a better deal than us so the problem <laughs> right. might kind of but that that is sort of something yeah. they allow for in the framework of the report but if you have a people who really really don't want this sure there's no reason why they couldn't say we're not going to vote yeah, to their government. Yeah, yeah, don't don't do this. Okay, well, we're going to wrap up this one like we did last time. It's probably going to be an election topic, and oh we'll, yes, <laughs> and mm. we will see what happens in the fall. Um, it is a what do we say? Um, elect us and elect us and elect us and dot 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 elect us and dot dot dot. Well, we can all breathe now and sleep. The Toronto Raptors basketball team made history last night, winning Game Six and becoming uh, NBA champions for the first time in the franchise's history. The team was uh, founded in 1995, having pockets of luck and moments of fame throughout the years, but nothing quite like this playoff run. Um, 
Kawhi Leonard was considered to be is considered to be the the king of the North, and he took home the MVP trophy. Um, I think he be I, I read he becomes the the third athlete in history to hold the trophy under the stripe of two different teams. I mean, I'm gonna be honest. I I don't. I'm not really a basketball fan. I'm I'm a full fledged bandwagon fan. Um, but it was a fun wagon to be on. <laughs> I felt I felt really um, like proud when the NBA commissioner was up on stage last night saying that the trophy was coming home to Canada for the first time where um, it was invented by by James Naismith. I thought that was pretty nice. I think yeah. Almont had their own viewing party yes. last night, yeah. right? Almont would have been going crazy. <laughs> um, well, there was viewing parties across the country. Well, but curiously, not really in Ottawa, right? I like know. We saw yeah. these shots of these enormous satellite Jurassic Parks, and, and I thought... Like, Ottawa's a big city, and we're very close to Toronto, and it just didn't seem to be a huge thing. And nobody put one together. It's true. There was, like, a, a bit of a parade in, in the Byron Market, but there was nothing like there was. Even in Montreal, it was pretty yeah. crazy. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. Yeah, it is interesting. I, we're yeah. better. Yeah. Ottawa's just bitter. We're just They're bitter. They're gnawing <laughs> on the sends, literally. <laughs> I don't know. Um, yeah, Toronto sounded crazy. I was listening to the Front Burner this morning. It was an episode all on the Raptors. It was crazy. Um, and I, I think everyone can appreciate the significance of this moment for Canada. The Raptors have become the first Canadian team to win a championship in one of the four major sports leagues since 1993. I was shocked to read that. I thought we had won like a hockey, but I guess <laughs> a not. Hockey <laughs> We've been in finals. Yeah. We, we, well, we Ottawa a Canadian has. team. Ottawa has, <laughs> Vancouver has. Uh, yeah, no, there have been, I mean, the Jays have had a couple of good right. runs, although not not in a World Series. But, yeah, we've not, no, none of our teams that's has done it. I, I mean, CFL teams, but that's yeah. kind of a gimme. A CFL team has won yeah. every year. Yeah. They're dominant. It's a streak. Yes. You know, I, I keep going back to, like, whoever founded the slogan, We the North, deserves, like, a prize. That's a pretty good slogan. The Raptors, have, I have to say, they have brilliant branding. Like they the, do. Like, right from the name of the team and the visual that goes with that and the idea of their fan precinct being called Jurassic Park, oh, it is so good. beautiful, vivid, awesome branding. A little bit 90s, i got to yeah, say. A little, little bit with that scratchy scratch <laughs> and the whole reference to Jurassic Park, but, like, really cool branding you can do a lot with. And I think a lot of brands latched on to the opportunity. Like, Well Simple had some really cool ads. Um, a lot of brands, I think, latched onto the opportunity to be a part of it, right? It's it's sexy, it's hip, it's young, it's diverse. When you want to talk about bandwagon fans, brands are bandwagon fans. Yeah. Like it's it's smart. If you can although yeah. it's I think it's a little bit of a tricky proposition because much like politicians, who right. I think we're also going to talk about, yeah. Um we should talk you about want it. it's it's a little bit of a tricky thing to capitalize on this and kind of jump aboard the bandwagon without looking like a craven opportunist mm-hmm. or like a wiener who like I know. bursts into the room and goes, hey guys, we the <laughs> Which I felt about Drake a little little bit um but yeah I Bill Morneau <laughs> yeah. remember the Bill Morneau quote I hope oh, they yes. will eventually vanquish their opponents or conquer. something he said conquer 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 like it's yeah. not a oh, medieval in the sports dear lord you know I wish that I wish in those moments but see to me that the other problem with that is don't ask politicians dumb questions about sports that are not relevant like don't try to force everyone to pretend to be a fan like and I wish someone would have the courage sometime to go you know what I wish them well happy for their fans haven't watched sorry and uh, let me let me let me speak in defense of Bill Morneau here okay it was that that line of of his you know I I wish the (laughs) I wish the young sportsman success in their conquest of their opponents or whatever Conquer was the key word. Um, 
But let people be fans however they want to be fans. That's the well, other thing. Well, my point is and I like thought a, it made it clear he wasn't a fan, and maybe, we should just let him off the hook on he's that. he's also like a giant nerd. And if, if this is how giant <laughs> nerds nerd. are fans of basketball, let them. Sure, yeah. And this actually I think is one of the great things about about basketball is it is really accessible. It is accessible. Like, hockey, the so unofficial national sport, is really expensive to play. Yeah. You need a special place to do it. For basketball, you need like a bit of a flat space and a hoop and a ball. Yeah, it's so true. And I want to say... I, I have a I, my beloved aunt, who is a also a loyal listener of the pod, has become a Hi. Raptors fan at the ages uh, the age of sixteen something. Oh Fantastic. my god! And That's has great. a group of people. They sometimes get together and watch. Other times they watch and exchange texts. She and I have been flipping emails back and forth. Oh, that's fantastic! During and after games, and so there's the Jurassic Park crowd. Yes. There are well, the, that's the, it. The, the, Older people exchanging texts <laughs> yes, as they watch games, sure. and it's bandwagons are fun. Bandwagons, bandwagons are, are fantastic. fantastic. Yeah. We need it. I, have, I would never can... be churlish about a bandwagon. No, yeah. we need we need that kind of positivity in our lives right now, and that's true. I think when you if you look at the the pans of Jurassic Park, there's like a four year old and then like an eighty year old. Yeah. And you're yeah. like that's kind of incredible. And and I would like to also point out that the Raptors do not contravene my ironclad shaking my fist and screaming on Twitter about how Canada's thing is not a thing. That happens every May when we're down to mm. one. Canadian team left in the NHL playoffs, and <laughs> yeah. every May I have a rage stroke and scream at everyone about Calgary because is not everyone's team. Because we have multiple teams and multiple allegiances, and it doesn't yes. work that way. That yeah. once you eliminate all of your hated opponents, you cheer for the guy who's left. The Raptors are the exception to that because they're all we got. They're all the skin yes. we have in the NBA game. Like so the Jays. this might be one of the like the Jays, like one of the only cases where you truly have a national team where if yes. anyone cares, this is where you locate that carry. Yeah. And that's awesome. That's and awesome. Pour one out for the Grizzlies and the Expos <laughs> on this. But yeah, everyone really can get behind this team. Um yeah. Going back to the politicians, I think Andrew Shear went to a game. Yeah. Um, I think Jagmeet Singh went to a game. Yeah, because he tweeted that or Instagram that video of himself, right? That kind of went viral of him cheering one of the yeah. big uh, yeah. shots. Some, he, I think, yeah. I don't so want to be Bill Morneau here. I know. Yeah. Shots <laughs> in the net. The ball. I think it's called a ball. <laughs> yeah. um, I don't think Elizabeth May went, but... And Justin Trudeau did I you know I thought he'd be a little bit more present in this because well, he loves this kind of stuff. So right? he kept he kept Instagramming pictures of himself and his kids, his kids. watching in their basement. But I had never thought about this. Um, CBC's The House did a segment on like politicians capitalizing on sports fandom, and I never thought about this until I heard a strategist say it. You have to be careful which game you have mm. your guy show up at because if it's, it's an elimination yeah. game and they lose, all of a sudden your guy is like the anti rabbit's foot. I That's would never true. have thought of that. It's so much more loaded for them and also because there's a danger of them yeah. looking bandwagony in a very cynical or goofy way right yeah um well, where it's like well like he did this doesn't look like a guy who's at home in a jersey why is he here and right. p.s we lost when he showed up it's true and i think in that same episode it was like this, these kind of events are perfect for someone like justin trudeau he you know he's kind of can kind of jive with the hip and the young and diverse and that's great and then for andrew Shear, it's like i'm not not that either <laughs> right. um right but yeah no i i i, I thought well we i think there will be some sort of parade in Toronto maybe he'll go there and maybe we'll see the team in Washington uh, next week visiting the White House with him I don't or know. Ottawa or, or Ottawa or the Parliament yeah. would we I, that's an interesting question we don't quite have that American tradition of come and see the big yeah. man after you win your big game right yeah we, we should I wonder if we'll import it now because of well <laughs> it's also been a while since it's come up so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what did we do in 1993 guys 
How did that work? <laughs> Let's, we we, we need to dust off the board. Respond to us if you know. Yeah. Uh, okay, that was fun. Thanks for joining at Twitter Handles, please. I am at David Reevely. And I am at S Proudfoot. And I am at Turnbull Sarah. We'll see you next time. All right, because I had David and Shannon with me, and they aren't the, the biggest super fans, I brought in the biggest super fan, full-time Raptors fan, R.E.D. Alex Patterson. Welcome to Thread on this very special Friday. Thank you for letting me bully my way <laughs> onto your podcast, Sarah. Um, how are you? Like, let's just start with, because you've been, you're not a bandwagon fan. I'm a bandwagon fan. You're not a bandwagon fan. I don't, so there's, I, I don't like the whole bandwagon thing, right? Because I think that, like, um, this team has been around for 24 years. Yeah. And it's funny, I was writing uh, last night, I, I took to Twitter, and I, like, wrote and deleted the tweet, like, 10 times where I wrote, it was just like, you know, my dad took me to the Sky Dome for the first season. We saw the Washington Bullets when they were named the Bullets, and I just remember, and I, like, wrote and deleted that tweet, like, 20 times, and ultimately didn't send it, because I think that, like, what's so great about this moment for this team is just how inclusive it feels, it, that, right? It feels true. really, really inclusive. Yes. And it doesn't do this moment any good if the folks that have been there from the beginning really right. lord it over everyone that's else. Because true. that's not what this is about. Like, if we want basketball to flourish and thrive in Canada, I think we gotta sort of that's true. Like, share the win. And David was saying that actually, that he was like my, I think he was saying my great aunt and is a huge fan um, who's, you know, a senior. And so you can be a four-year-old and you see it in, when they pan over in Jurassic Park. There's like four-year-olds, there's there's 12-year-olds, there's 25-year-olds, there's 80-year-olds. It's it's an inclusive sport. Well, and let's talk about it not just in terms of age, but just also in terms of like ethnicity and cultural diversity. Yes. Um, there was this moment last night <clears throat> in the Oracle Arena. So um, all the Raptors fans that were there actually in Oakland and saw the win, you saw them sort of gathered behind the stage. And like, it was just like Canada can be really proud that mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. our, yes. that that's our sort of yeah. our emissaries, right? Because it looked like the city of Toronto. It's the second most diverse city in the world. Um, and that's who's really fueling this team. That's yeah. who's really sort of fueling this new spark of love for basketball in Canada. What do you think? Who is, so can I just ask who's your favorite player? Uh, my favorite player, I mean, I really have a lot of time for Kyle Lowry. I do like, too. Kyle Lowry, the um, as I was standing in the middle of my living room after, last night after my standing wife Standing on the couch. She told me to get off the couch <laughs> because I was in very real risk of breaking the couch. And I'm standing in the middle. Um, we, the the buzzer goes and then they add more time and then it goes again and yes. then they add even more time on top of that. Anyway, so that that game was trying to kill me personally and I think a lot of people feel that yeah. way about it. Um, but the, the moment that really got me last night um, and I haven't seen it replayed at all today because that's all I've been doing. But there's this moment where um, Masai Ujiri, the president um, uh, of basketball operations for the Raptors, um, and Kyle Lowry just found one another and yes. like embraced and hugged. And like that was probably one of the most emotional yeah. moments because if you have context for this season, um, you go back to last summer. 
The Raptors have been also Rams for I don't know how many seasons now, right? Yeah. Like, you know, we, we it was you got to the, the, the first round and that was an accomplishment and then we get swept. Yeah. You get to the second round and you get torched by you right. know, Paul Pierce and the and the Wizards. You um, we got all the way to the Eastern Conference finals and then you know LeBron James just routinely dismantles us every single year. So mm-hmm. something had mm-hmm. to give and mm-hmm. Masai Ujiri uh, said, you know what, enough is enough, made the hard choice, traded DeMar DeRozan, um, who meant a lot, like, in a very real way, um, DeMar DeRozan was special to this city because he wanted to be in this city. Yeah. Right? Like, the inferiority complex that all Toronto Raptors fans, and I think other fan bases have their own version of this, but it's, like, kind of central to the Raptors' identity, is one of inferiority, right? Like, a a major star would never sign there. Um, It's, if you're a Toronto Raptors fan, uh, a long-suffering Toronto Raptors fan, you are very practiced in the story of exits and people leaving. So to actually trade away someone who said, yeah, I want to be here, um, who had a really deep bond with the captain of the team, Kyle Lowry, um, we went into this season with one of the like iciest cold press conferences that I've ever seen and where Kyle Lowry was basically like, you know, I'm just going to do my job. That man, Messiah Jerry, like, you know, he's going to do his job, you know, and the the subtext was, um, this is not cool. It's not great. Mm. I'm really unhappy. Um, and so to see that kind of arc come full yeah. circle, it was just was just really like because it was it was a big redemption moment I think for the both of them. Yeah. And um, and and Lowry, I think, is really emblematic of what makes a lot of this team really really special and a lot of what fans look for in this team, which is someone who was kind of overlooked. Yep. It's kind of how we feel yeah. as basketball fans, yes. right? Someone who totally. has tried to improve his game every single year, and that's been a bit of a struggle. Um, and someone who really believes in kind of like hard work and heart, right? Like those three things are really central to mm-hmm. what I hope, yeah. you know, they're kind of central to the Canadian basketball identity. And they're wrapped up in this 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 guy. And so that emotional moment was like it was really it cathartic. Was I he to me is like the the symbol symbol of what a captain should be. This Toronto Raptors team, like this, and I'm gonna say it into a microphone, this 2019 NBA champion Toronto Raptors team. So good in. <laughs> in. is like they're full of guys that were overlooked and undrafted yeah. and I like had that. to make their way through the league. And so um, for this team to win, to beat the Golden State Warriors, who we have to say was Is a it? depleted, they were, they were a dynasty, but they were also a depleted roster right. because of injuries. Um, for this team to do it, it's improbable. It is unexpected. So it is exciting. And it's something that, like, I, you know, I, I, this is partly why I wanted to come on the podcast because I know that you're an Ottawa Senators fan. I know right. that uh, right. <laughs> Shannon is an Ottawa Senators fan. And yes. um, I looked at David's Twitter feed last night and he was posting pictures of like polar bears. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, like, so so I wanted to make sure that got I, it out there. I wanted to I use my executive privilege to make well, sure that this was it's... voiced on the pod. Um, but looking at Toronto Raptors fans celebrate. Yeah. 
That was crazy. But we've all kind of had that moment where, like, all right, you you see, like, we do this every year. There, there are four major professional sports. Yep. Right? Yep. There is a champion every single time. There's the newspaper. And by the way, I went out this morning and I bought, like, three Globe and Mails and, like, a couple Toronto Stars. <laughs> like, I've stashed those away. Frame it, yeah. Yeah. Um, but we do this every year. Like, the like victory in sport is not new. Like, it, it's we are well-practiced in it. We are well-practiced in what it looks like. But when it's your team and when you haven't won a lot, you're not practiced in what it feels like. Yeah. So there is this weird disconnect where you actually, you see Young and Dundas Square fill up I and know. it's like, no, I, I know that place. Yeah, the, I that, know. The, that, those flags are our flags. Those hats are our hats. Yeah. Those shirts are our shirts. Like those songs, that anthem is our anthem. Mm. And so we know what it looks like, but we don't know what it feels like. Mm. And so I was up until like you know 2 a.m. last night, just kind of soaking in the feeling because it feels alien. It yes. feels foreign. Yes. Um, but it doesn't feel bad. No. <laughs> like, and here's to it continuing on for days and weeks and months to come. There will be a parade. Uh, there will be many more celebrations. It's the weekend. It's Friday. I'm sure it'll carry on all into the day and night. So congrats, Raptors. For Canadians, paying with Interact Debit is synonymous with access to your own money. In 2018, Canadians made over $6 billion Interact Debit transactions the equivalent of 160 per person. Interact Debit is accepted at nearly 500,000 businesses across Canada and growing. Learn more at newsroom.interact.ca.